podcast hosted by Brandon, Lauren and me Ross. In today's episode we're going to have a quick catch up about what's been going on in the news at home and internationally. We'll also be talking about some of the issues that have arisen in our party in the last few weeks. To start with though we wanted to let you know that we've launched the Left Wingers community. If you sign up to the mailing list you'll be the first to know about opportunities to join our podcast episodes recording and exciting projects coming up. We've set up the community to get you, our listeners, more involved in our podcast and to hear your feedback about how we can improve it. So please visit our Twitter page for more information about the Left Wingers community. The link to the form is pinned on our profile. So, on to the episode. Before we begin, we'd like to offer our thoughts and condolences to all those affected by the explosion in Beirut, Lebanon. I first became aware of what happened when there was, a, there was actually a video circulating on Twitter of the two explosions. One smaller that looked like it was kind of like uh, fireworks. And then there was another big blast, which some were comparing to a nuclear explosion, even though uh, it wasn't actually nuclear. And despite what Trump was suggesting, that the explosions were caused by a bomb, the Lebanese president actually came out and said that it was caused by ammonium nitrate, um, 2,750 tonnes of it that were being stored unsafely in a warehouse. And it's more down to negligence rather than a terrorist attack of what we know so far. You've had President Macron of France visiting Lebanon and he called for profound change when he was there. What, what are your thoughts on his visit? I know that a lot of Western newspapers certainly had a lot to say. It's awful to kind of watch it for a start kind of happen straight away because as soon as it happened it pretty much came onto Twitter so it was almost like watching everything unfold in real time and in terms of obviously Macron visiting I've heard that he was you know smirking in parts and it kind of seems a bit distasteful I'm not sure how the people of Lebanon feel about it because obviously there was the history with France and their country you know, it's, it's a difficult one to gauge. It's not for me to say as I'm not from there, but you've got to kind of do these things sensitively and I don't get the sense that he did. Yeah, a lot of people have been um, comparing it to some kind of neo-colonialism. We've had France talk about kind of reclaiming its place in the world, becoming the new, uh, the new America, if you like, uh, being the leader of the, the free world. And it does seem like his approach to Lebanon was him trying to kind of make that mark and this was his opportunity to put France as a global player but it came off for me as though he was doing it for political reasons he was visiting Lebanon for political reasons. I do think richer countries like ourselves France and the US um, we do have a duty to support countries like this especially when uh, these atrocities happen and you know France given their colonial past in Lebanon do have a duty I feel, to to support the country and and help them rebuild. Yeah, so even though there has been a conversation about Macron's visit in Western newspapers, there has actually been anger against the government in Beirut. There's been citizens from all across Lebanon uh, going to the capital to help clean up and uh, trying to help in the rescue efforts. But that's because there's been a distinct lack of state-led efforts in the post-crisis 
There's people protesting for change against the corruption of Lebanon's current and their past governments. And that coupled with a time of economic crisis for Lebanon and the fears for food shortages, because the, the port Beirut was a major place for food imports. And now that the storages have been uh, destroyed, that could lead to food shortages across the country um, without foreign aid. It's a very, very tense political climate there. So now looking a bit closer to home, we've had the, the exam scandal in Scotland. So what's happened pretty much sum up is teachers have estimated what their pupils would do in an exam. Obviously, we can't set exams this year. And the SQA, along with the Scottish Government, have downgraded the pass rate amongst the poorer pupils by 15.2%. The richest pupils have only been downgraded by 6.9%. Um, so what you're having is a lot of these kids in poorer areas projected ARBs been downgraded to C and D's, meaning they're missing out on university places, college places, jobs, apprenticeships, and the, the Scottish government's line seems to just be, "Oh well, you can you can appeal it. That, that's not good enough. You know, people can't sit in limbo till they hear it back from a, an appeal, um, and we don't even know what the time scale is going to be for an appeal. Also, it's it's really not been a good week for the SNP and the Scottish government. Um, you've had the MP for Stirling, Alan Smith, a leaked letter that he's written to the, the National Executive Committee saying equalities are close to my heart, but not as close as independence. And it just sort of shows you that nationalism comes above all for the SNP. And it just reiterates the need for Labour to win again in Scotland and not simply cave into the SNP and form an electoral pact. Yeah, I mean, going back to the SQA results, it's caused a lot of nerves in people who are receiving their results in England, Wales and across the country because they fear that the results in other parts of the country will be the same as in Scotland in that poorer areas will be will be punished for the fact that in the past those schools haven't got as high grades as um, the national average and for me it just reinforces the inequalities that we already have in the education system the fact that people from private schools and grammar schools already have an advantage generally over other students and for that to be actually formalised in exam results is is really shocking to see. In my school the past performance of the school was so low even though our results did actually pick up significantly from the year before we to our year I would have ended up having grades taken down because they would have been basing it off of our school's previous results uh, which was significantly lower and I just really feel for people who um, their schools might be transitioning from uh, one form to another they might be turning from a comprehensive to an academy and particularly those pupils where their performance will be based off the previous school's results I, I do worry for them and I hope that they do get the results that they they were after um, and that they're not actually unfairly penalised for the school that they go to. When questioned on it Nicola Surgeon refused to take any responsibility for it she simply blamed the, the attainment gap which we know is there and it's it's grown under the SNP. They've been in government for 13 years, and, and that's their excuse. Well, if that's such a big issue, why haven't you tackled it over the last 13 years? She said she would protest it as well if she was in their shoes, if she was a kid doing their exams now, she'd probably be in the protests. Well, if you don't like the outcome that much, why are you not doing something, as you just yeah. said? You know, and the SNP give it about them being progressive and left-wing, and so they're not. You know, like what you said there about her saying she would she would protest. It's always the same. It's always rhetoric and, and no action to follow up. It's really encouraging, though, um, and certainly for the students, that government has been held to account over this. 
Um, Scottish Labour have called for a vote of no confidence in John Swinney, who's the, the Education Secretary as well as Deputy First Minister. Um, and, and I'm confident, hopefully, that the Greens will back that. And if so, we will have a majority in the Scottish Parliament against them. Scottish Conservatives have got a new leader as well, but he he is um, quite well known now for his racism against the Gypsy Roma and Traveller community. He was asked if, if he was Prime Minister for the day, what's the first thing he would do? Not, you know, I don't know, tax reform or whatever, but he would go on and harm the interests of an entire ethnic group. It's really worrying. It is, and it, it speaks volumes that, you know, most people would, if they could do one thing, would be, I don't know, maybe end poverty, end homelessness, you know, improve schools, and that's what he came up with. Ruth Davidson's back in as, um, has taken over First Minister's questions, so it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Um, as much as I, I dislike uh, Ruth Davidson's politics, she is relatively popular in Scotland. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out electorally for the Scottish Tories. Now then, on to our new segment, which we will be calling... Kill Watch! We're excited to launch our new segment that will pop up in some of our episodes, Kill Watch. The clues in the name, we'll be keeping you up to date with what Storm has been up to, holding him to account and discussing what's been going on with our party. So I suppose the first thing we need to really talk about is he's been travelling around the country to talk about jobs, jobs, jobs. And he's been to a list of different places. He's been to Peterborough, Falmouth, he's been to Stoke. He actually said that he would sweat blood to get their votes back. Been to North Wales. And he, he seems to be quite well received wherever he goes. He meets business owners. And he, for example, in Stoke, he met people from the potteries and breweries and other industries. He knows what seats we need to win back. These are our target seats, the, the seats that we lost in the last election and if Labour ever wants to be in government again we're going to have to win back these people's support and it makes sense that he'd be focusing on them seats and um, I'm sure people in some of the places listed would be really happy to see a Labour leader showing them that much attention because some of the voters in those seats do feel like they were ignored by the party before so it's it is positive to see him going out and talking to people in those areas even despite uh, the restrictions that coronavirus puts on him. I mean, there were a lot of activists moaning. I know it happened in Falmouth, um, the left mainly, surprise, surprise, um, going on about how he didn't tell them that he was coming, blah, blah, blah. Well, for the purpose of actually trying to keep everyone safe and business owners safe and him and his staff, it makes sense not to potentially invite thousands of people to come and shake your hand and meet you. So I understand why he did that. And it's quite nice as someone who lives in the Southwest that he's bothered to come all the way down into Cornwall, because not many politicians do, I have to say. Yeah, no, he's going to all the right places. Um, and, you know, when he was running for leadership, he said that he would. And unfortunately, he wasn't able to get out into the country. Um, it was only through social media that he was able to communicate with voters. And it's really exciting to see that he's back out, he's speaking to voters, um, and hopefully he can win them over. Because um, these are the sort of seats that we need to win if we're going to win in 2024. It looks like it's working. So there was some recent polling that came out and actually not only is he outperforming the Labour Party in terms of favourability, he's outperforming Boris Johnson as the public's most favourable person to be Prime Minister. And that's the first time that's happened in years. It's something I'm certainly not used to seeing. I suppose none of us really are as we've had Corbyn for the last five years. But 
it does seem to be working and I think we might not always agree with his methods within the party but I think there are a lot of people looking at him and looking at Boris Johnson and thinking actually he looks like the adult in the room yeah Yeah. that's that's great to see I do think it shows that the party is still damaged by uh, not just not just Corbyn's leadership but past leaderships and because the view of the party is still more negative than the view of Keir Starmer but I suppose that's something that will come with time the detoxification of the party's image He's trying to do it through tackling anti-Semitism and um, he's, he's trying to kind of get away from the image that the party was branded with before. Yeah, and I, I think we've got, what, four years to do that. And especially now that he is able to speak to people face-to-face, albeit at a distance, um, you know, people will start to see Keir Starmer as the leader of the Labour Party and, and not associate it with uh, Jeremy Corbyn, who was unpopular, and I don't even think Ed Miliband actually pulled ahead of David Cameron at any part, any point. Sorry, um, but I need to check that. Um, so, so hopefully, with a more popular leader, uh, we can win the next election. It's just, it's really difficult. It's going to be very interesting when we all go back on the doors when coronavirus is over, because obviously those of us who've been out door knocking will know that actually it was the leader that was the problem. The party generally wasn't really said much about. It's going to be the opposite now. The leader is going to be the saving grace and the party is going to be the problem. So it's going to be weird not having to constantly defend your own leader on the doorstep repeatedly. (laughs) Because I can't count the amount of, he's a terrorist sympathiser, he's an anti-Semite. Well, you know, you can say what you want about that bit. But um, it became quite exhausting to have the same conversations. But I think the problem is, though, Whilst that bit's quite positive, there's also a very strong issue that we're dealing with at the moment. And I think all of us have been quite vocal about it, which is the transphobia in our party. For those who aren't aware of what's gone on, essentially Rosie Duffield tweeted, um, she liked a tweet by Piers Morgan, got called out for it. She doubled down and basically said that only women have cervixes. It's obviously exclusionary to trans people. And rather than when she was, she was actually criticised quite fairly initially. People were quite, you know, they were robust, but they were fair. Rather than hold her hands up and say, you know, this is, it was a mistake. I misspoke or, okay, I get it now. Just completely chose to ignore it, double down, get worse, say some really inflammatory things, call people communists for standing up for trans people. And the leader has done nothing. Keir Starmer has done nothing. And in fact, we've got Marsha D. Cordova, the shadow minister for women and equalities, liking tweets in defence of her, got loads of front, um, front bench and back bench Labour MPs coming to her defence. And where's the defence for trans people? We've had Zara Sultana tweet about it. Who else? Is anyone going to actually bother? Yeah, no, it was in my mind rightly. Um, he sat uh, Rebecca Long Bailey. When it comes to Rosie Duffield, he's, he's said nothing, he's done nothing, he's taken no action. And it's not acceptable. You can't pick and choose when you're going to call out discrimination. You have to call it out when you see it. And it's clear as day um, that Rosie Duffield has shared and posted their own transphobic content. And that needs to be called out and action taken by the leadership. Yeah, I was giving Keir Starmer the benefit of the doubt in that he hasn't really talked about uh, trans rights in light of the Conservative Party threatening to... Um, attack trans rights and I gave him the benefit of the doubt thinking 
Um, maybe it's part of his strategy. You know, coronavirus was particularly big at the time when uh, the Gender Recognition Act debate was particularly active. But there's no defence of him not disciplining, not calling out MPs when they are spreading transphobic bile. It's one thing to not be pushing the the message from trans people and it's another thing to not be defending them when their existence is being defaced by a Labour MP. It's really disappointing that there's not really been anybody in the Labour Party who's spoken out about it, apart from a couple of MPs. I think it's it was worth mentioning actually, it's not transphobia in our party isn't just a factional issue, it's not just you know the more centre left MPs, it permeates through because you've got the likes of Laura Pidcock and Anne Henderson standing on the CLGA slate and obviously they've got a history of being called out for transphobic comments and but that, that's perhaps why no one is saying anything because the left can't say anything because a lot of them are backing Pidcock so they know that if they said anything they'd be called hypocrites and rightly so but it's very uncomfortable watching the hustings during the leadership debate I thought Keir Starmer looked massively uncomfortable at the LGBT hustings I don't know if you guys agree, but he, he just didn't seem to understand the issues at hand. And he didn't sign the trans pledges. Yeah, I, I wasn't able to go to the LGBT labour hustings, but I heard from people that his performance on LGBT issues wasn't, wasn't the greatest, to say the least. And it was disappointing not to see him sign the trans pledges. And it was one of the reasons why I personally didn't support him in the leadership race. But now he's in the office. Now he is leader of the Labour Party. It's something that he should be taking more seriously. He should discipline members because, as as you've already said, you can't. There's there's not a good type of discrimination. There's no better type of discrimination. So if he's if he's going to be tough on anti-Semitism, he also needs to be tough on different forms of discrimination within the party. And you can't have Labour MPs, MPs of a progressive party, what's supposed to be a progressive party not standing up for the rights of minorities in the country. I think that's a really important point as well. You've got to be consistent, like you say, and it shouldn't be left to get to that stage where it could be considered institutional. It's got to be dealt with when it's seen, head on. But it's not, and it's really frustrating. I can't count the number of trans and non-binary friends I've spoken to in the last few days that said, do you know what, for the first time, I'm actually questioning whether I'll ever vote for Labour again. And it really shouldn't be that way. We shouldn't be a party that rests on our laurels based on the fact that we repealed Section 28. That's not good enough anymore. In terms of Duffield, obviously, I'm just going to segue this in now. You probably will have all seen my rants on Twitter about her targeting nitrous oxide for policy. What did you guys think about that? Were you in agreement with her? or? Well, it's a very traditional way of approaching drug policy. We, we know that just banning drugs doesn't work. It doesn't stop people consuming drugs. And to ban nitrous oxide will not actually solve the problem of nitrous oxide. And in fact, it just creates, again, another, another black market for it. And the issue isn't as widespread as was being made out. So actually, by creating policy on it, it's probably drawing attention to the consumption, um, in my opinion. And it's, it's in the opposite direction to what I hope the party will be moving towards in terms of drug policy. It's very... Uh, it's very reactionary, it's not very thought out. Essentially, it's um, it's young people that are going to be criminalised, and it, as you say, it's regressive, it's not progressive, it's not evidence-based, it's not looking at actually what works, doesn't focus on harm prevention, and as the Labour Party, we shouldn't be pitching a tent next to the Tories and using their rhetoric when we talk about crime, justice, law, drug policy. 
we need to actually go with what works. As a party, we should be talking about the dangers of drug use, but trying to tackle drug use by just outright banning it has been proved to be <laughs> an unsuccessful way of tackling drug abuse. And it's, it's a very traditionalist approach to drug policy to just say outright ban it and that will somehow solve the problem. We need to be, we need to think bigger than, than that. We need to come up with more creative and innovative ideas to tackle drug use. Talking of rash, Trump. Um, <laughs> the Settle for Biden campaign has been released uh, on Instagram. It's a sort of coalition of Bernie Sanders supporters, Elizabeth Warren fans, basically encouraging left-wing activists in America and left-wing voters to settle for Biden. And I think it's a really good idea. I think the last few months, Trump's reaction to coronavirus shows, you know, just how much we need America needs change. You know, I'm not a fan of Biden at all. Uh, he's done some questionable things in the past, you know, said some really concerning things. Um, but I think when push comes to shove, it is going to come down to Biden versus Trump. And, you know, I just hope that America chooses Joe Biden. Well, yeah, I also am not <laughs> in any way a fan of Joe Biden. Uh, I hope that the Democratic Party kind of controls him if he, he does get into office. Um, but what I particularly like about the, the Settle for Biden campaign is not only do I think that it's going to be effective in getting out the Bernie and Warren supporters on election day, but I also like how they're using the platform of their Instagram accounts uh, to promote other progressive candidates. So like, for example, Cory Bush um, running for Congress in Missouri. Uh, they've been defending Ed Markey, who's a progressive senator um, in his election race. And uh, they've been promoting people such as Ocasio-Cortez and her support of Biden. So then even though Biden in, him, in himself is not a progressive, they're using the platform of supporting Biden to support other left-wing candidates, which I think that's great use of media. It's quite interesting to look at the polling actually by state. And I saw something, I think it was for one of the Carolina states actually. And earlier in the year, there was quite a big gap between Biden and Trump. I think it was like 10 or 11% it's now narrowed to about five percent so it he is making inroads but i'm just wondering you know the whole settle for biden campaign is this something do you reckon that we could kind of take from and use in our country because obviously we've got whether or not the lib dems want to claim otherwise we've basically got a two-party state just like america so is that something you guys think could work over here i definitely think it could work because um there's a lot of people who have negative perceptions of our current Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. And even though Keir Starmer, I wouldn't say necessarily inspires people, he might change. His, his way of leadership might change between now and the election, but I can't say he's a particularly inspiring figure, but I think he's a figure that a lot of people could settle for. Uh, and that's maybe a campaign that people, perhaps more on the left of the party, but some people on the right of the party, that's the kind of campaign that we could push uh, to get votes out who are not a fun of Boris, but um, wouldn't mind a Starmer government. Yeah, and I mean, you've got the Settle for Biden campaign coming from the left. It, it's a really good idea, the, the Settle for Biden campaign. It's coming at it from the left. Uh, and then you've also got things like the Lincoln Project and Republicans for Biden, which isn't coming from Trump's right, but it's certainly coming from the right of American politics. Uh, and their ads are absolutely astonishing. They're brilliant. You know, obviously, I don't agree with the 
Lincoln Project, but you know their ads and their self are, are so good. It's really interesting to see how it's, it's all sort of playing out. You've got Biden coming close in states like Georgia, Texas, Ohio, Iowa, which you know at the start of the year just weren't in play at all. Um, so it, if it holds, you're looking at a Biden landslide. I mean, to be fair, Biden doesn't have to do too much at this point. You just have to let Trump exist, continue to make gaffes, show his own incompetence, because a lot of people's concern with Biden was that sometimes when he's public speaking, he forgets his words, he stumbles. Uh, some of the things that he says just don't, don't make sense. There's, uh, they completely miss the context of why he's speaking there. But there's Trump at the moment who's also making similar mistakes more and more. And we see him in the interview with uh, Jonathan Swan with his, his graphs, which weren't really proving anything about how effective uh, Trump's government has been in handling the coronavirus. But he was there desperately trying to make the case that his Trump government had actually been successful in tackling the coronavirus, which all the statistics say has not been the case. I think watching him with those graphs as well, it was like looking at Joe Swinson in the last election. Honestly, it's the, it's the same, it, it's desperate. It comes across as desperate. And it was one of the other funny things that I've seen um, while they've been campaigning was Trump's campaign team released a video saying basically this would be life under Biden using footage of a riot from under Trump's leadership. <laughs> Actually bizarre. I just, I, I can't comprehend it. It's ridiculous. But I'm just wondering as well, something you just said about, Brandon, about how Biden doesn't really need to do anything. He just needs to let Trump be Trump and he'll eventually go too far. Is that something Starmer maybe needs to think about? Is that why Starmer is being how he is? I think potentially that's why he's trying to mimic that kind of Biden campaign in that he doesn't say too much and just lets Boris uh, make mistakes. But at the same time, I don't think he's been strong enough in holding the government to account for its failings. I like his, I'm going to use the word, forensic approach to PMQs in that he delves into the statistics, he delves into things that ministers have said um, to hold them to account. But I don't necessarily think he shouts about the government's failings as well as Jeremy Corbyn does, particularly in the, the 2017 general election. But anyway, we're going to have to wrap up our discussion there. If you like this episode, you can follow us on Spotify, Left Wingers, and on Twitter at Left underscore Wingers. Be sure to turn on notifications to be the first to know when a new episode is released. You can also find links to our Spotify and Twitter in the description. Stay safe and we'll see you soon.